ready for brain stories? Get inspired and learn from thought leaders, CEOs, business owners, and managers who tell their brain stories, who share their valuable insights from their own experience. Welcome to Brainstalk. I'm your host, Bridget. For brand lovers, this show is to help you develop and grow your brand in a more strategic and sustainable way. Walk the talk. Let's get started and dive with me into the world of brains. My guest today is a global brand consultant and non-executive director. He adds value to world-class business schools such as London Business School and Hanley Business School as a visiting lecturer by bringing in a high level of commercial experience in the areas of global brand, product, distribution strategy. He has just retired from operating at senior leadership team level within the international division of VF Corporation, the large U.S. apparel company responsible for such brands as the North Face, Vans, Timberland and Kipling. He is an experienced global brand president with a track record of building fast-growing, profitable brands in the premium apparel and fashion accessories industry. He has successfully developed businesses in diverse markets across Europe, Asia, and North and South America. He has strong business development credentials in leading public companies and is skilled in sales, brand marketing, digital development, unified retail, and long-term strategic planning. I want to welcome Richard Macy. Welcome to my podcast, Brands Talk. Thank you very much, Bridget. I'm delighted to be here with you and supporting you and hoping your audience interested in my little story. So no, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you, Richard. It is exciting to have you here as my guest today, as you have so many years of experience with brands. Can you tell us a little bit about your brand journey, about your time in the cosmetics and fashion industry, and about the power of brands in that sector? Sure. Yeah, when I when I left university all those years ago, I really just wanted a job in what everybody called FMCG, consumer goods, and actually started up in the beauty business and the cosmetics business. I started in the sales and marketing side of the Elizabeth Arden brand, which was a very big brand in those days. And I worked my way up there from being a lowly marketing analyst. I got some very solid sales experience, which I'm delighted I, I got at a very early age in my 20s. And then I ended up there after something like 12 years as the, as the marketing director which was, and that was kind of really where I learned about um, branding, the value of brands and, and how to manage these brands, which are so precious. Um, and after that period of time in Elizabeth Arden, I then moved to Christian Dior, their, their beauty business in the UK. I became the UK managing director and Christian Dior, was then and is still now part of LBMH. So that exposed me to the interesting experience of working for such a French luxury powerhouse as LBMH. So yeah, that was that was really my start. And at the time, Dior was had just launched um, famous fragrances like Poison and Fahrenheit for Men. And we launched the fragrance called Dune for Women. And um, That was really a, a huge success. And it, 
I guess what the beauty business taught me was how valuable brands are. And therefore, they're kind of little precious jewels. You know, you've got to look after them. And people are given brands to look after. And sometimes they drop them. You know, you mustn't, you mustn't drop these valuable brands. You've got to look after them, you know, as though it was a, a million pound piece of jewelry. You know, you've got to look after them with precise, loving care, continually evolving the brand as the consumer evolves and making sure the brand interacts with the consumer in a very correct way at every single touch point. So by the example of Dior, how did you make sure you continually evolve with consumers and what can we understand by interacting, let's say, in a Dior brand correct way at every touch point? I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, I mean, in those days, it was really the physical touch point. So um, the Dior department in Paris, and I'm sure it's still the same in the internet world, they had really, really strict playbooks, menus, where they wanted to um, present a consistent brand image around the world. And I think that's evolved a lot as brands have evolved and as Asia's become so much important, much more important, I think there's a flip around from the days when the French luxury brands kind of dictated in a positive way, but they dictated to the individual markets how the brand should be presented. I think there's now much more of reabsorbing the DNA of the consumer into the brand, particularly the the DNA of the Asian consumer and typical of a British person to generalize that. But of course, the Chinese consumer is fundamentally different in different parts of China. They're fundamentally different from the Japanese consumer. They're fundamentally different from the South Korean consumer. So it's, it's how you incorporate all those pieces of individual DNA, is the phrase that I like, or the culture, back into your brand to make sure that your brand contains that DNA so that it is loved by the consumer, but also doesn't uh, sort of spoil the brand or dilute the brand is a, is a big danger. So you mustn't uh, uh, dilute the brand, but you have to for sure incorporate the DNA of the consumer into the brand. And that's, I think, what I began to learn at the time of working with the French luxury houses. I really like how you put it, like incorporate the DNA of the consumer into the brand. It really hits the point. Then you move to Calvin Klein. This is one of your success stories, one yeah. of the many. <laughs> Would you like to share this one with us? I've got, I kind of, I'd been by then in the beauty business for something like 14 years and I kind of... I mean, it sounds like an incredibly arrogant thing, but that's the sort of arrogance you can have when you're in your 30s. I kind of thought I'd done it all, you know? I thought that these beauty brands had been so... There was such a bubble. They were they were grown, they were presented, they were huge, they were huge margins. And I thought, you know, what else can an individual add to these to this, to the marketing of these brands? So I decided to move into the fashion business. I joined the company that owns the Calvin Klein, their branded underwear business and their fashion business. And 
I began to bring some of those um, brand disciplines from the beauty business into the fashion business. And I, I still believe today that fashion has got so much to learn from beauty. When you look, when you go through the airports, when you go through what used to be the department stores, which are now rapidly dying, when you go through the internet, the, 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 the work that the beauty brands are doing to consistently, coherently build their brands, I think is, is still stunning. You know, it's totally stunning. You walk through a big airport in those days when we could do that, and hopefully we can again soon, and you see the amazing way that beauty brands present themselves. I think that's a, that's a, that's a skill that fashion brands have to learn and can learn and you know this amazing skill the beauty brands have to build this prestige image for what is essentially a mass distribution product you know you can buy a dior perfume everywhere every every perfume shop and every high street and every internet site selling perfumes will have the same products but they've managed to combine that prestige image with mass distribution and I think that's all down to the impeccable communication and in the days that I was working in it that perfect in-store merchandising and um, I talk about how great brands don't die and I talk about how great brands don't die people kill them and I think that for sure is true of so many department stores we're going through a lot of changes in the department store world right now Everybody is blaming it on the internet. Everybody is obviously blaming it on COVID. But to be frank, those brands were probably dying anyway. You know, the great brands, the Debenhams brand, the Karstadt brand in Germany, you know, they were great brands, but they didn't evolve them. Great brands, I, I like the phrase that great brands are unfinished stories. You, you can't write the story of a brand and, and leave it. You have to continually evolve it. And... Even 20 years ago, you could walk into most department stores in Europe. You would go through a beautifully merchandised, fitted out beauty department. And then it was like falling off a cliff into, into history when you left the beauty department into the fashion accessories department. It was like going back into the 70s. And then as you moved up the floors and as you went through the fashion department, it was like a different world in a bad way because they... They hadn't, they hadn't moved themselves forward as a, as a retailing brand. And then those brands had such an opportunity when the internet started, whenever it was, 10, 15 years ago. You know, they didn't jump on that. They saw it as a threat. They saw it as a thing they had to resist. And then they kind of reluctantly opened up their own websites and never jumped into it. So... It's kind of crazy that, you know, here in the UK, brands like sort of Boohoo and ASOS or whatever, they're all, they're worth more money than amazing brands like Marks and Spencers, you know, with these brands that had so much equity, but because they didn't evolve with the consumer and they didn't evolve with the way that consumers were buying, they, they, the people have killed those brands and that's kind of just bad management. And I think that's a, that's a real challenge for, for, for brand managers to make sure that you're looking after your precious brand and you're not dropping it and seeing it die. So in a nutshell, what are, let's say, the three or around three factors that fashion can learn from beauty in terms of communication? 
So is there anything that you say, these are the three critical factors that the fashion brands can take away? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's number one, it's precise definition of your target consumer. Precise definition, psychographically, what is your consumer looking for? What, what is their real desire? And keeping it very narrow, you know, most of the beauty brands have still kept their primary focus on, on women. Whereas I think every single fashion brand you ever think of, they, they, they do a women's range and a men's range and a kids range and they, they kind of lose their focus. So I think it's focus on the consumer. I think it's building your brand story in a way that that consumer will love and doing it consistently and evolving it, of course. So it's targeting your consumer, it's making your brand story interact in a way your consumer loves, and then having a very precise, very narrow product range which matches the brand and the consumer. And you know, what's, what's killed so many great fashion brands is excess discounting. And excess discounting, it's blamed as a disease of the high street, but frankly, it's a disease that the fashion brands have created with this continual churn of the spring, summer, fall, winter merchandise and the fashion drops and the, you know, the the and then the discounting at the end of the season. And it's it's this churn of fashion, which the beauty business has more or less managed to resist, that I think is a, a fundamental thing. And it, it comes from getting greedy and thinking that more product is more business. It's not, you know, most of the best beauty brands rely on relatively few products um, and they drive those products ruthlessly and they keep them for a long time. You know, it's, and I think that's a, that's a very important thing. So you, so the beauty brands are very good at seeing their, their fashion drops is almost like, sprinkles on a cake you know mm -hmm. the cake is the core of their business and the the fashion collaborations and the different colors they're, they're sprinkles on the cake they're not the core part of their business and i think fashion brands need to learn a lot from that mm, i totally agree with you absolutely uh, richard uh, when you started working with kipling which is a leading brand in selling handbags backpacks luggage and accessories sold in more than 80 countries around the world and it has become part of VF Corporation 2004 where you climbed up the career ladder to eventually become the global president Kipling in 2014. Uh, what was the recipe of making the Kipling brain so successful? I think it was three things and I've already touched on some of them. I think the, the first thing was bringing this brand and product discipline of beauty into the fashion accessory business. I very early on realized that handbags for women, just like perfume, it's very often an impulse purchase. I haven't met so many women that haven't got a handbag in their wardrobe and that really need another handbag. So it's an impulse purchase. So therefore you've got to ensure that the branding is perfect and branding from the product outwards, the way it's displayed both online and in the physical space, every point the consumer sees the product 
it has to be the best possible merchandising in the best possible locations in the best stores and in the best internet sites so it's that brand discipline treating a handbag more as a bottle of perfume than as a than as a fashion accessory was the way that I thought about it from the branding point of view. And secondly, it was all about Asia. You know, Kipling is a perfect brand for the Asian consumer. Everybody now is talking about the growing influence of China and Asia in the world. But, you know, 20 years ago, that was a relatively novel way of thinking. So I spent most of my early years at Kipling in traveling a lot around China, traveling around South Korea and Japan and establishing this brand there when the consumers were hungry for brands. You could go into department stores in China even 15 years ago and you would walk into this huge, beautiful store and the store director would come down from his office and he would say, where would you like to put your brand? How much space do you need? How much advertising should we do for you? You know? The, the, the Chinese consumer 15 years ago was, was hungry for brands. And, and so we, we got Kipling into China and Japan and South Korea in those very early stages. And by the time I left for Yes uh, a couple of years ago, Asia was the fastest growing region for Kipling. It was, Kipling was the leading casual women's bag brand in most of the big markets. And, and with the increasing Easternization of the global consumer, of course, that gave us enormous momentum in the airport business and travel retail and in the big European capital destinations that Asian consumers used to visit, like London and Paris, and I'm sure they would again once this pandemic is over. So it was the, it was the, the, the focus on Asia, which was a very big part of my success. And, um, and thirdly, it was all about digital. You know, it was kind of the same as perfume. If you ensure that a brand is precisely managed, that you consume it, that you communicate to your consumers in the right way, you have to make sure your your consumer can find it. And you know, the writing was on the wall for so many brick and mortar retailers um, fifteen years ago that you could see you had to jump in very fast with the internet retailers, even the internet retailers like Amazon. You know, there's a, there's a dichotomy going on here that most premium brands think Amazon is the enemy. But I've yet to find a consumer that doesn't love Amazon. <laughs> Every consumer loves Amazon. And so the beauty, the, the beauty brands are, are sat back with their arms folded and said, we don't want to, we don't want to be on Amazon. They'll damage our brand. But, um, I, I think that's fundamentally a mistake. You've got, to, you've got to manage your brand and you've got to manage your distribution in such a way that you are where your consumer is shopping. So we were pioneers at Kipling for VF in building strong relationships with a number of internet retailers in line with my, I guess, fundamental belief that you have to follow your consumer. You have to evolve with your consumer. And now... I know that you know many internet retailers are extremely important customers, partners with with VF Corporation, like Zalando, the great German footwear and fashion retailer, is a very, very, very important partner for VF Corporation, and that came from that that understanding at the very early days that you know 
fashion brands had to change from being focused on physical distribution to accelerating their digital thinking. And so three things to summarize what made Kipling success, brand discipline from beauty, focus on Asia, focus on digital. Mm. So let's stay a little bit with the focus on Asia. So um, you mentioned that you have spent several years in China and how... How was that for you? I mean, managing Kipling as a brand, did you also encounter any local idiosyncrasies where you needed to adapt to this local consumer behavior? Not, and it took, and it took me a long time to understand that. Um, first of all, in the way that I was taught from beauty, you had to go and tell the consumer what your brand was. And you almost were not allowed to listen to the consumer because you were the brand, you were the global brand, you had to be consistent. But then as we began to work in you know, markets like China, South Korea, we realized that was fundamentally wrong. You had to listen to the consumer. You had to listen to their idiosyncrasies. And then you had to embed their DNA in the DNA of your brand. And then you had to go and dictate. But, but the process of integrating the DNA of the Asian consumer into the brand and then going to sell it in a totally consistent, coherent way was really the big learning and the big learning for so many brands that, you know, you cannot, you know, every consumer is different in the same way as the Austrian consumer is different from the British consumer. For sure, the Chinese consumer is way different from the, from the, from the, French or the British consumer, and probably even more different from the US consumer. You know, it's a very different mindset of shopping in in China than it is in 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 in, in Europe and the USA. And so it's really listening and embedding that into your own brand thinking, which was the fundamental thing we had to learn. Could you maybe give an example of uh, in how much you had to adapt maybe in a communication strategy? Yeah, I, I love it. An example I love to talk about is the North Face. The North Face is the, the mountaineering brand. And back in the, uh, maybe five years ago, um, the North Face advertising campaign was in Europe and, and USA and still is this never stop exploring it was this lone person up a mountain exposing himself to danger the you know you know the lone explorer the was the vision of the north face and that was very powerful in europe it was like very powerful image that it conveyed the strength of the consumer it conveyed the strength of the explorer and was very strong when we did the research in china on that campaign And bear in mind, at that time, China had a single-child policy. The, the single child was, was, was so precious. And they'd been taught that you're a single child, you haven't got brothers and sisters, you've got to look after yourself, don't put yourself in danger. You've got to make lots of friends because you haven't got brothers and sisters, so you've got to make lots of friends. And then... You contrast that with the, the lonely person going up the mountain, and there was a total disconnect. So the North Face changed their communication campaign in Asia, in China, to be not the lonely man up the mountain, but much more the community of friends walking together in the 
through the fields, through the forests, you know, because showing groups of people happily together, which I think came straight from this different mindset of single child to 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 European family, you know, it's such a such a change. And so that's one simple example. Yeah, it's a really good example and very interesting to hear that, yeah. Ultimately, uh, Richard, as a president Global Kipling at VF Corporation, you were leading global teams. And this involved developing a methodology to align strategies that are shared among all brands such as North Face, Timberland Vance, just to name a few. Uh, could you elaborate on this methodology of leading these teams and managing different brands in an aligned way? Yeah, in, in, in a top-line, outline way, because I don't want to talk too much about um, BF's brand-building philosophy and organization, mm -hmm. but I think suffice it to say that it starts with this detailed understanding of the local consumer. It's embedded in consumer insights. So in all of the key markets, there are consumer insights teams really trying to understand the, the consumer. And then you have the design teams that are decentralized in such a way that they stay very close to those local consumers. So you would have a design team in Shanghai, you would have a design team in New York, you would have a design team in Paris. But, but then the, 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 the trick and what VF do, I think, brilliantly well is they coordinate that together from a global center. And the key thing really is coordinating in a, a democratic way, coordinating in an empathetic way, not a dictatorial way. So it's, it's combining all of the um, input from all the design teams all around the world. And, yeah, and, and you know, accepting the fact that perhaps the design team in Shanghai is much better at doing the, the colors and the prints for jackets than the design team in New York, you know. And, but, but getting everybody, I guess, the, I guess the pivotal point is you have to make everybody in the local teams realize they're part of, that they are responsible for the global brand. The world's too small to have the Chinese developing for China. The Chinese have to develop the brand for global consumers, accepting the fact that they're part of the global brand. You can't allow three or four brands to spring up because that would, that would damage the value of this global brand, but the global brand has to include the input from those three or four key regions. So it's, it's a complicated way to explain it. Um, and, and it was difficult to, to make it work because, of course, what you also need in this process is speed. You can't, if you're not careful, you get, you get stuck in too much bureaucracy, you slow down, and you, and, and you get stuck in process. And so that was the trick, to get, keep the, the empathy and the, the democracy going to get all, everything working together, but do it in a quick way. And that demands a lot of very talented people. And that's what VF have is ultimately very talented people. Because, you know, with all of this stuff that we talk about, it ultimately comes down to, to great product and great people. You know, those are, the, those are the fundamental underpinning things of most good businesses. So, yeah, that's what VF do very well. Great product, great people. 
Yeah, indeed. Great products, great people. Yeah. Mm. So I have one more question because there's this so-called global consumer culture and this global brains and being perceived as a global brand. And on the other side, um, you have these local uh, customers with their... Um, yeah, specific um, needs and, and wants and behaviors. How do you balance that? And there's this so-called uh, global approach that a lot of companies are driving, yeah? standardize as much as possible and adapt as much as needed. So in this pendulum, in this uh, kind of situation that companies are trying to, uh, to drive their strategy. So what is your stance on that? I think it's really interesting. I was, yeah, I was always much more interested in, you know, brands like Kipling and even brands like Vans. Vans is now far and away the number one brand in VF Corporation. It's a it's an excess of $3 billion a year turnover. And, but my suspicion or my, my gut instinct is that the consumer that's buying those brands still thinks it's their brand still feels it's their little secret, you know, even though they know it's it's a mass brand. I, I like those brands where the consumer feels very personally attached to it. I think even huge brands like Nike, you know, Nike is such a global powerhouse. But when a consumer goes out to buy their pair of Nike shoes, they're still thinking that the pair they bought are special for them. And it's that it's keeping that individual specialness which is very difficult to do. And, and it's making sure, you know, there are, there are a few brands, and, and, you know, especially I think with the, the, the problems that the USA are having at the moment with their global influence or lack of, you know, so many brands were very proud to say we're an American brand. And you don't feel that's as powerful as it used to be. Um, even five years ago. So I think brands have to be very careful about saying we're, you know, and brands don't, but brands have got to be very careful about the consumer thinking that's a big, powerful brand which comes from the USA because that's almost the antithesis of where the consumer is evolving. The consumer is evolving to wanting their own little secret brands. And there's so much noise around the damage that, apparel brands are doing to the environment and the damage that the US is doing to the environment. And so you've got to be very careful to keep that to, to keep that global brand story kind of behind the scenes and making sure the consumer sees it as their own special little brand. Yeah, keeping the global brand story consistent across markets and over time and at the same time making sure that each and every customer connects with that brand in their own special way is a demanding task yet leads to success. Good. You also have been a global brand consultant since 2018. Um, what is the profile of a typical client uh, you are consulting to? And uh, what are the current client's needs that you help them satisfy uh, when it comes to branding and, and managing brands? Yeah, well, quite a few clients, as you can imagine, want some of my 
detailed competitive understanding of VF, but I, I refuse to disclose anything confidential or working competitive companies. I try, and, I, I try these days to stay away from the, the tactical work on brand building. And I work, work much more with companies on their strategic direction. There's a very simple framework developed by Procter & Gamble called Where to Play, How to Win, which is it defines strategy as a series of choices a company has to make and choices companies make about consumers, about products, about countries and channels, and then develops the way in each of those choices and how they win and then build capabilities to execute those. So I work a lot on that. Um, I guess my value proposition is that I built Kipling into a $400 million highly profitable business from something around $50 million. So I, I guess I know how to do it. And But most of my work these days is with academic institutions. I work with the two leading business schools in the UK on their master's programs for executives and for pre-experienced students, really helping students to develop their ideas, to develop their latest ideas on global brand building. I think, you know, the world's moved so fast and, you know, the, the, the internet mindset, uh, you know, people of my generation can pretend we've got it, but, you know, it's the young, it's the 20s and 30s people that have really, and even younger, that have really got it. We used to talk a lot in VF about reverse mentoring. You know, in the old days, the old man mentored the young. I think today is the young people have to mentor the old. And I think the more that old people understand, they have to listen to the young people and not try and tell them how to do it. I think the better. And so all I can do is give people some frameworks, very high level frameworks, which they can use to work on. Exactly. I totally agree with you. I totally understand because I think also teaching is so rewarding and it's, it's as you say, not only passing on the knowledge and the frameworks, yeah, but also learning so much from your students. I think it goes exactly. both ways. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, Richard, there is this strong statement that you really like to use. Uh, great brains don't die. Customers kill them. I want to pick up on that again. Yeah. Please, yeah, um, uh, can you really elaborate <laughs> on that? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a really arrogant statement. And it was a boss, a boss said it to me probably 50, 20 years ago. And it's I think too many brand managers, they use what I call inside out thinking. They might deny it, but they assume their brands are great. They assume consumers just have to learn to love them. It's like when when your young children don't want to eat their green vegetables. You, you say, well, look, all vegetables are nice. You just have to learn to like them, you know. But brands are not like that. I believe much more in what I call outside-in thinking. What do consumers really think of your brand? Don't ask them what they think and then argue with them really let them flow and tell you what do they really think of your brand what is the competition doing not in a way that you want to work out how to beat them at it but just what are they doing therefore how do the consumers see your competition and how do consumers see your value i, I think there's a there's a challenge for a lot of luxury brands and you know how does your perceived value really compare to the competition? And 
And I think in this way, you'll continually evolve your brand. So you can't let your brand stand still. And luckily enough, most of the great brands in the world today, I think, have learned that. Mm, I think so too. Pursuing this customer-centric approach where you immerse with the customer. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's, everybody's saying it. It's a cliche to say it. They've been saying it, you know, literally since the early 60s when, when they wrote the first textbooks on marketing. But in my experience, so many brand managers spend a lot of time kind of in denial and, you know, saying my brand's great. We just have to go and sell more of them. So I, we, we, I don't, you need to really practice outside in thinking. There's some great books on outside in strategy, you know, and training your mind to think outside in is a really important mm. lesson for most people. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, I, the other the other little cliche I like to roll out is that all the best brands are unfinished stories. I think I said it earlier, you know, brands mustn't stand still. I thought it was Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, who said that. But then I, I was doing a presentation for some students a year or two ago and I tried to Google it. And I don't think Phil Knight ever said it. So maybe I made it up. So I don't want Nike on the, I don't want Nike getting me in trouble for making up words that Phil Knight never said. But any, anyhow, you know, think about great brands, think about Coca-Cola, think about Nike, think about Vans, think about Apple, and see how they've evolved. You know, those are the brands that are, are, are evolving and growing. So, like I say, great, all great brands are stories, but all the very best brands are unfinished stories. They're still telling those stories. They haven't written it in a playbook which stays still as the brands were when I started in the beauty business. They're continually still writing their story and evolving their story. Yeah, well, I was also not successful in linking the quote to Phil Knight, Richard. I <laughs> you like, yeah, but it's your quote. <laughs> Fantastic and so meaningful quote. That's why uh, this... <laughs> you can quote me on it. Maybe I'll get myself in Google. Richard Macy said all the best stories. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Richard, uh, yeah, another, another topic I would like to um, touch uh, on now is the COVID crisis, which has disrupted the world. And sooner or later, we will arrive in a new normality, whatever this is. Right now, we experience a time of uncertainty, which fuels our customers' fear and anxiety. And so, from your perspective, um, what is a brand's role in an anxious world? What can brands do to build more this economic resilience and, and also... Um, our individual confidence um, and what can brands learn from the current crisis? No, it's a, obviously a pivotal point for brands these days. And again, I think you've got to think of the consumer. You've got to, consumers are almost definitely now and probably when this is over going to be um, nervous. They're going to be hygiene obsessed and they're probably going to be poorer. It's going to take a long time for consumers to have the same levels of income as they had before the crisis. So what does that outside-in thinking mean for your brand? How are you going to adjust your brand so that that nervous, hygiene-obsessed and poorer consumer loves you? And think about your purpose. Many brands and companies made a great play before the crisis of being purpose-driven with some 
higher level aspirations for people, CSR, the planet. And I think brands have to stick with those purposes because consumers are going to judge you with how well you managed your purpose, profit, uh, 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 the dilemma of purpose versus profit and can it be purpose and profit? And that's the, you know, there's a there's a big controversy in the UK at the moment because the government committed by law a number of years ago to put 0.7% of their GDP into foreign aid. And because we're having financial problems, we've now cut that 0.7% to 0.5%. And it kind of, it takes away a lot of the the credibility of the UK and brands are going to be very careful they don't fall into the same trap. Brands were out there talking a year ago of how they were going to save the planet and you know recycle and reuse and use less and and and, and in the their current survival mode, I think brands have to be very careful that they still manage that purpose profit uh, balance. Mm. So when it comes to sustainability now, since you um, have uh, already touched uh, on this, what do you think, how can brands find a clear purpose and set this North Star purpose and activate it and navigate towards it? What do you think? Well, honestly, I think if you look at what BF Corporation are doing right now, I look at it from the outside, I think they're doing a totally marvelous job. There really are, you know, the, the last thing I saw from the CEO, it said that brands have to step up. And I think that's true. Companies, brand owners, the big companies, have to give the freedom to brand managers to step up and live the purpose and, and take a little bit of the financial pressure off of the brands because it's the purpose that's going to make brands live for um for many years and and it's what the consumer is demanding the young consumer that's coming up they they don't want brands that are killing the planets now there is a school of thought that that's a that's a middle class wealthy person statement and that if you're a poor person you know you don't it's, you don't really worry about um about the planet but i i i, I don't really buy that argument i think that as as consumers emerge from this COVID crisis and as consumers begin to rebuild their income, I, I think this underlying purpose, it's more like a, a value of the company, like a personal value, which you, you shouldn't be changing. I think you absolutely have to stick with mm with your purpose. Mm. Maybe also as a consequence of the COVID. So what do you think are yeah, the future trends of brands communicating with customers? So is there more, let's say, communication uh, online? Um, is, is traditional media still playing a role? And also, um, what does AI play in this context? So how will brands engage with their customers going forward? What do you think? Yeah, I, it's, you know, as, as you've heard so far in this broadcast, I can speak a lot, but there's been so much written on this stuff by people that are much more qualified than me. I'm not sure there's anything left I can say meaningful, which adds real value. I, I like to stick to the fundamentals, understand your consumer, work out your where to play, how to win strategy, and never forget that other truism, that it's all about the product, 
too many marketeers think first about communication and forget that consumers buy products. So I think product quality remains king. So I would, you know, and yeah, people need, people at brand managers today need to read a lot on what's happening out there regarding AI customization, um, mass, you know, internet communication, but, but stick to the fundamentals. That's what I'm much more talking about. Mm. I think that's a good advice to, to stick to the fundamentals. Those don't really change. They shouldn't really change. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Good. Let's go back to square one. From your perspective, what are some brand building essentials? For someone who is starting his or her own business, any best practice advice and any strategic recommendations from your side? Yeah, I think that's what I've been saying. Define your customer, define your bullseye customer and spend 50% of your time on understanding them. Don't try and think about how you can build your brand on your product to, to get more customers and broaden your customer. Define your customer, understand them, and then, and only then when you understand them, build and evolve your brand and your product to match that consumer and then execute against it. Nothing complicated. Customer consumer definition for me is fundamental. Hmm. Good, Richard. Is there a specific project, let's say a brain story, which of course is unfinished, as you say, but you were part of it for a considerable time, a brand that was particularly exciting or rewarding for you, which you want to share with us? I'm so proud of Kipling and what we did there. You know, we started with a little, it was a small Belgian brand exporting to a few countries and we we turned it into a global global powerhouse really, which um yeah produced a lot of a lot of sales, a lot of profit and I think I'm, I'm very proud of Kipling and what we did there. Mm. Well, vice versa then, Richard. Are you also willing to share an experience where you worked with a brand that was um, a major learning for you, something you might consider as a failure, but was important for you all and growing from it going forward? Yeah, I can even mention the name as it's such a famous case study and it's probably in the books. 30 years ago, LVMH and Christian Dior decided to make major investments and launch a new fragrance house under the name of Christian Lacroix. Christian Lacroix was the new couturier that Bernard Arnault promoted and they launched this new perfume and frankly it was a, and they employed me my first entry into LVMH was to launch this perfume and frankly it was a total disaster it was uh, it was like only afterwards that did they decide to talk to the customer with some customer insight studies and Then they found out by talking to the customers that they didn't like the box it was in, they didn't like the bottle, they didn't like the name, they didn't like the smell. And I'm pretty sure after that debacle, which was 1989, goodness me, 30 years ago, I think after that, I'm sure it taught LVMH, Dior, and a lot of people that start with the customer, ask the customer before you launch all this product so and that's still true today mm. yes customers are first and i always say customers own brands and they decide good richard before coming to the end of our show i would like to do a quick word wrap with you are you ready to give me quick and short answers i can certainly try bridget yeah okay then it comes to zeitgeist uh, a german Okay. A change. 
always, always change. Heritage. Authenticity. Brand personality. Consumer personality. Disruption. What are the consumer? Brains. Precious jewels. Okay. Richard, for listeners who would like to find out more about you, where can they find you and maybe get in touch with you? They can find me on LinkedIn under my name, Richard Macy. I think there's only one Richard Macy on LinkedIn, so they can always find me there. Okay. Richard, thank you so much for being my guest today on Brands Talk. It was a pleasure having you here and it was really interesting to talk to you and learn more about your perspective on brands and their unfinished stories. My pleasure, Bridget. Very nice to talk to you and talk to your listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Richard Macy. In case you like my show, make sure you subscribe to the Brainstalk podcast. And don't forget to share it on social media. I hope you will stay tuned in on the next episode when we dive into the world of brains.